Hi, welcome to New Creation Family Church. I hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Um, the rest of you, you can open up your Bibles or tap on your Bibles and please turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you'll find it in the first part of um, the Bible, first section. Today we're going to continue our theme in defining moments. And the next character, the person we're going to look at is Nehemiah. Um, before we get into this passage, I want to play one last clip for any of, anyone that has been away recently and had um, radio silence. This has just been some of the news that we've had in our country recently. comes to use Van der Westhuizen, little knock forward, but that's it! South Africa have won the World Cup, having been back in international rugby for less than three years. There's not a schoolboy in a township here now who can't dream the dream. This is where it all began for Sir Khaleesi. A dirt pitch at the back of his local primary school. Also the first black Springbok captain to lead the national team at a World Cup. Only on the special day for the Springboks, a special day for Sia Kolisi, who will be leading South Africa in the final in his 50th test cap. With all the struggles and problems we have, there are so many great stories that haven't been told. And, and, and I'm hoping that tomorrow we just finish our story as this group we can inspire there are so many of those kids to know that they can definitely achieve it. These children, like millions here, are uniting behind a Springbok captain whose story echoes their own, in the hope that he leads them to victory. You know, that's the most complete performance I've seen from any team in the modern era. You know, maybe, which probably means ever. It was one of the most comprehensive performances I think I've ever seen. You see England dominating New Zealand in the way they did, every facet of the game. Yeah, I think when they get their opportunities, England will take them. I mean, they look absolutely primed. And it's England who come away as winners. Eddie Jones has done again. He has masterminded a huge World Cup upset. His men are too good for the All Blacks. Rugby World Cup 2019 is about to hit its pinnacle with South Africa and England down to fight it out for the game's ultimate prize. Happy ones for Francois Pinard. 
six. England back within punching distance. Best part of an hour played in the final. England 12, South Africa 18. Still South African ball. Oh, Marks, beautifully away to Mapimpi. And now the chase over the top. Holmes gathering it. Oh, it's back to Mapimpi. Brilliant. And the boy from the township scores for the box. Here comes Jason You asked me to do it. You asked me to do it. You asked me to do it. You did it. Sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little us does. It speaks to youth in a language they understand. The heroes are standing with me are examples of this power. They are valued not only in the playing field but also in the community, both local and international. Chicken, buy me a cup of coffee after the service. <laughs> but where to from here, South Africa? What was it, two weeks ago? Just stirs up these emotions. And I know many people went and were at the airport and watched the, the team come home. But where to from here? Now there's that part in the anthem, and united we shall stand. And this has been... Our captains cry just saying there's challenges in this nation, but we can be stronger together. And we love the story of what um, has happened with this team and, and what has happened over the last two weeks. But I still ask you, where to from here? And um, God is in the business of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And the story that I'm about to talk about is going to highlight some of what God can do with a nation. And can we believe that God has a plan for this nation? Do we believe that God has a purpose for this land? Do we believe that God has a purpose for you and me, some ordinary, everyday South African citizens that are in a nation like this and trusting to to change and bring, bring a difference. I want to just give you a quick overview of where we are at in the story of Nehemiah. In 586 BC, the Babylonian nation came and took over most of the known world. King Nebuchadnezzar captured the Jewish Jerusalem 
and destroyed it. So if you talk about uh, King Solomon's temple, that was destroyed, along with the walls, along with all that the Jewish nation had at that time. It's society that completely got ripped apart, dismantled, and the Jewish nation got scattered around the world as slaves and as prisoners. After that, we had the Persians that came in and defeated the Babylonians. And King Cyrus made a decree that some of the Jews could return back to Jerusalem. They did it in three waves. About 50,000 Jews started returning back. And this was a period of over 100 years. And when we start reading through this passage in, in um, Nehemiah, we find that King Artaxerxes is the king on the throne, the Persian king. And we meet the character called Nehemiah. And something happens with this very ordinary person. What I love about this story, he's not a king, he's not a prophet, he's not this mighty warrior, but it turns out that he's just a cupbearer. What was a cupbearer in that day? It was one of the most important positions that the king had, and it was someone that was there to taste the wine. Anyone enjoy tasting wine? As a Jewish servant or as a Jewish slave, being in the temple, serving the king, he had a pretty comfortable position when it comes to being a slave. He had access to King Artaxerxes. He had some of the benefits of being in the, in the palace. And part of his job was to taste the wine. Why was he called to taste the wine? Well, because many people wanted the king dead, and poison was definitely one of the ways to do it. So one of the negatives about being a cupbearer is that you needed pretty good life insurance because if you had a bad day in the job, your life ended. But he had access to the king and the king trusted him. And let's start reading from Nehemiah 1 verse 11. And it says this, In late autumn in the month of Kislev, which is November, this time of the year, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from ca captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Here is a defining moment in Nehemiah's life. It is a defining moment that I don't understand why it happened. He is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, he's never even been to Jerusalem itself. But yet in the comfort of the temple, in the comfort of his role and his position, he has a broken heart for the nation of, of Israel, Jerusalem, for the Jews. God does something in his heart and it, and it crushes him, it breaks his heart when he hears the, the state of that Jerusalem. The temple had been, they had started rebuilding it, um, but the walls were still torn down. The gates were burnt down. It is like having a nation without an army or police force. Anyone can come in at any moment and come and, and steal and bring destruction. 
It's like living in a townhouse complex and not having a gate and not having walls and not having a door on your front door. Basically, nothing you owned was secure. They were vulnerable. They were still broken. And for over 100 years, they had tried to get things right. And Nehemiah, in this moment, has something that God does in his heart. And I don't fully understand why it was him, but it happened to him. I don't know if anyone here in this room has ever had God come and break your heart or do something in your heart for the orphans or for the poor or for a a group of people or a nation where God comes and does something in your life, breaks your heart, um, and you're never the same after that moment. He has this defining moment where he gets down on his knees and he starts to pray. Actually, this is one of 12 prayers that he prays. And in these prayers, they are God-focused, God-centered prayers. They are not about me, God bless my food and my life. It is um, referring to God, big prayers, big prayers for the nation. And he even lumps himself in the confession, which we're going to go through now. This is what he says. And I said to, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. He lumps himself in the sin of the nation. I have sinned. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. And we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember that you told your servant, what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So even though we had a nation that rebelled and, and went against you and you scattered us across the land, remember your promise that you will call us, that you will hold true to your promise to us as a nation, that you would bring us back to that place where your name will be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and your strong hands are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. And then he prays this prayer. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So he doesn't just say, go and you go and change Jerusalem. You go and send someone else. He says, here I am. Let me be a part of the solution. Let me do something. Let me be the one that goes. Give me favor with this king as I approach him. I don't know if you were here last week, but we had the, the board from Oasis. Last week was Orphan Sunday. And it was, it was really moving. It was quite an emotional service for those that were here to see them stand up and weep for the orphan crisis in this nation. For those that were here, anyone here? Wasn't it moving? Here you take Chris and here you take um, Daryl and you take Tepo. And, and they have jobs and they have lives, but yet something has happened in their heart that has broken their heart for the orphans. And they're saying, here I am, let me play a role, even if it's for 20 orphans. Let me do something. And I was moved by their passion. Something, there was a passion of brokenness in their heart for this assignment that God had given them. Where you feel the burden, I want to ask you to look for the assignment. 
It's one thing to have a broken heart for this group of people. It's another thing to say, God, okay, what am I going to do here? What is the assignment you've given me? In our prayer meeting before the service, we're saying, God, as a church, won't you break our heart for the things that break your hearts? Won't you give us a passion for this nation and for your kingdom advancing? But don't just break our hearts. Give us the assignment to do. What is it that you want me to do? What is the role that I can play? And for many of us, it's this fear. It's this, this job is too big. This task is too difficult. I don't know if I can do it. And Nehemiah is in this place. Actually, when you look at the, the next chapter, it says, early in the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of the king, four months have gone by since God broke his heart and he got onto his knees and he prayed and he fasted. It has been a four-month period. Why has it taken so long for him to take that next step in the assignment that God had given him? Was it because he didn't have an opportunity and access to the king? I don't think so. As the cupbearer, he would have been in his presence often. But I believe, that, I believe that fear was something that held him back from fulfilling the assignment that God had given him. And you're going to see in a moment why I believe it was fear that gripped him. It was fear that paralyzed him. Even though he was mourning and praying and fasting for this assignment that God had. So it says this. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Understand this. As a slave, as a servant to the Persian king, you were never allowed to, to show your emotions. Never allowed to bring him down because of your oversharing and, oh, I'm not doing well and I'm in a bad place. This is the first time he says that he showed um, sadness in his presence. So the king asked, why? Why are you looking so sad? This is a dangerous point. You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And it says, then I was terrified. This was the door. This was the opportunity that God had opened for him to say what he needed to say. You know, we have times in our life where that window of opportunity is there and we need to have the boldness and the courage to step into it and to say what we need to say at that moment, even though he's gripped with fear. Do I just pretend like I've just had a, a headache and I'm not having a good day? Or do I say what I need to say? Because slaves do not ask favors of the king. Slaves do not have that right. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king asked, well, how can I help you? This is an amazing point in the story. Proverbs 21 says, the heart of the king is in the hands of our Lord. For four months of praying and fasting and crying out to God, Proverbs 21, the, hands of the, king is, the heart of the king is in the hands of my Lord and he directs it like water. This is the power of prayer. This is what we want to say when we are praying for our nation, when we're praying for our president, when we're praying for our leaders, when we're praying for our husband, when we're praying for our brother, that God can move things in people's hearts, that He can change them. And here God does that, that miracle, that work in King Artaxerxes' heart. And He says this, with a prayer to God of heaven, I replied. So this is the overflow of his prayer life. This isn't when the door of opportunity comes and he says, oh, well, 
when he says, what can I do? Um, sorry, Lord, I haven't spoken to you for a while, and let's just catch up where we are, and thank you for being my God. And this wasn't that moment where he had to slip away and go and have a prayer meeting to try to get his prayer life back. He was on it. It says, with a prayer to God of heaven, I replied. I love that intimacy, that walk that he had with the Lord in, in hearing his voice and being led by him. I want us to, I'm looking at a, a curriculum or a series that I want to maybe do in our life groups in January or in February for the church to look at prayer. Because I believe God is calling us as a church to pray bigger prayers and how to pray. And many people, if you had to ask them, how is your prayer life? Many people would say, well, it's the bless my food and bless my life. Help me. Amen. They shallow. And I believe God is calling us to know how to pray and to pray for this nation and to pray big and bold prayers. But he prays and he responds to the king and it says, If it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I will be gone, the king agreed to my request. A big prayer, a burden, a broken heart, and God gives him that defining moment, that breakthrough in his life. And the king releases him with a blessing that says, I'll send you men, I'll provide for you, I'll give you material, go in my blessing and go and rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So he travels for three days. And in chapter 2, he arrives in the city. And he doesn't arrive with trumpets and here I am, the God sent the anointed one to, to come and save your plight and kind of rescue you. It says that he walked in and in, in the evenings, he went and walked the city and he, and he looked at the walls and he weighed what the problem was. I see great leadership skills in the role that he plays in um, the rebuilding of the city. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 16 says, The city officials did not know I had been out there and what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in administration. But now I said to him, You know very well that we, about the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told him about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about the conversation I had with the king. And they replied and said, yes, let's rebuild the wall. And so the great work began. And this is this call to come together. This united we will stand, stronger together we will stand. And the amazing thing is how he mobilized this entire nation. Just remember for over 100 years, 140 years, they had struggled to just build the temple. But the city still remained in ruin, with the walls and gates still broken down. Everyone worked. And when you read through this passage, it talks about every, every people group that they had all playing their role. This isn't Nehemiah out there doing the work. It's not a one-man show or just the select few. This is everyone playing their role. This is a great picture of the church. The church is not just about the full-time staff that are called to do the work. Every one of us is responsible for playing a role as being a part of his body. The fingers, the eye, the ear, 
The full body has to function for the church to be the church. Everyone has to play a role. And one of the amazing things is how he takes this city. He has an image of the shape of what Jerusalem looked like. And there are all the groups and the part of the wall that they were assigned. The, the gate, the fish gate, the old city gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, um, the goldsmith and merchants. They were all given sections of the wall, the wall to rebuild. The thing that I love about the strategy that Nehemiah had was that he gave each one the responsibility to, to repair the wall that was in front of where they lived, across from where they stayed, across from where their children played, and their teenagers were, I don't know if they were kicking a ball, I don't know what sort of sports they did back in that day. But he gave them the responsibility in front of where they lived. This is so key. People care most for what is most personal to them. How are you going to fix the wall that is in front of where you live? You're going to do it well. And you're going to do it with everything you have because this is where I stay and this is where my loved ones stay. And they took that responsibility and they all played their role. He mobilized all of them for a work that was greater than what was ever seen or done before. Who knows in the story, it just doesn't end like that, but they face opposition. Don't ever be surprised when you take a step of faith and you see pushback by the enemy. Advancement always invites opposition. What the law of gravity. There's a law of the enemy that says anything that is stepping up by faith and doing something in, in accordance to what God is doing and accordance to His will, there will be pushback. There will be opposition. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is um, a verse that we're praying this morning, Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 12. And a final word, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. John 10 verse 10, I have come to give you life and life abundantly, but the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. They faced opposition. Do you think the enemy wanted them to rebuild the walls? We will face opposition as individuals, as families, as a nation. There are voices in this nation that want to divide, not unite. There are voices that want us to live under the bondage of fear and hopelessness. There's a voice that wants to dismantle everything that happened with this World Cup and coming together and this excitement that this nation has had. And there are voices that want to sow doubt and fear back into our hearts. Or reaffirm them in our hearts. I know that when I have stepped out and said, God, here I am, use me. Here we are as a family, use us. I know that we will face opposition. I know that there's going to be a cost to pay. I know that there will be pain. I know that there will be difficulty. I know that as a church, when we say, God, let us pray big prayers. Let us do something in this nation to touch a community to touch our surrounding areas. Who knows that there will be pushback? There will be opposition. Nehemiah faced opposition 
from two individuals that didn't just, in the beginning, verbally try and pull him down, but later on there was a, an attempt to take his life. How do you respond to the critics and the haters and the naysayers and the doubters? It wasn't just the opposition that they faced, but the... Oh, let me just read this. Nehemiah 4 verse 1. Sambalit was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the war. He flew into rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of the friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they are doing? Do you think that they can build, rebuild the wall in a single day for just offering a few sacrifices? Do you th actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? Some of the Bibles use the word rubbish. Um... And, and you'll see how the, the Jews actually use this phrase. It's catchy, and then they start believing that what they're doing is just kind of rebuilding a whole bunch of rubbish. And charred ones at that. Uh, Tobiah, the Amorite, who was standing aside, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. They faced opposition. Peter, why don't you open these doors? It's getting hot in here. And then we see this verse. And then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble or rubbish to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. All of a sudden there is a moment of discouragement. I don't know how, how far along they were in this journey, but it's around the time when half of the wall in the broken wall was now being built. Half of it. Who knows that half a wall is not good enough? If we're going to give up now when we've only done half the work, it was all a pointless exercise. Here they are faced with the, the real crunch of the matter. Are we going to push through in this difficult time and finish it? I look at this great nation and I go from our terrible history and our terrible past and us being this prophetic picture to the rest of the world of what reconciliation and forgiveness looks like, if we don't get it right now, what was the point of it all? What would be the point if we just allowed it to collapse and divide us and bring hate with everything that we said as a nation, 11 official languages, such diversity in our nation that we can come together and pull together and show the world what forgiveness looks like and working together. Nehemiah had a leadership problem. His workers started to complain. They started to give up. How many times in the journey do Christians, when they face a little bit of opposition and difficulty, start saying, listen, this is too hard. This whole Christian thing is a little bit too difficult. I don't even know if God exists because of these difficulties that are going on in my life. The onslaught of the opposition went to a whole nother level now. This idea of building the wall and just facing verbal um, opposition now went to people were about to die. Now the enemy is going, we can't allow this to happen. And they started attacking them. And we see in this passage that the laborers now had to work with one hand supporting their load and the other hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belt to their side. All of a sudden, the hands that were now being used to build, half of them had to now be fighting off the enemy. Imagine trying to put bricks together while someone is trying to take your life. 
all of a sudden lives were now in jeopardy. All of a sudden, when you could die doing this, changes things. You know, like our mission team, it's one thing to say, let's go to this safe area. It's another thing to say, let's go to a nation where I can be in prison for the rest of my life or even killed for carrying a Bible. When it's going to cost you your life, all of a sudden, <laughs> the stakes are raised. And they have an opportunity where they say, you know what, this is too difficult. Let's rather go back to the comfort of my house and let's just live with broken down walls or we're going to fight and we're going to push through this. It says, we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half of the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the wall to stay in Jerusalem. That way, um, that, that way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us all the time, even when we went for water. Here is a picture of how desperate it became. Not even time to change our clothes. Something goes wrong again. And in chapter 5, he starts dealing with a social challenge in in the community. There are Jews that have been lending money and so on and charging high interest rates and there are people that are now losing everything, not able to eat and selling their daughters as slaves to pay back what they owed. All of a sudden he goes from having to fight walls and rebuilding walls to trying to change societal evils, structures in their society. Who knows, it, it sounds a little bit easier to build walls with bricks than try and change people try and change structures of inequality and abuse. You can read that chapter and, and see his leadership and the role that he played in dealing with this high interest rate that was being charged and how he called them into repentance and how they made a decision to give back and to make things right. Actually, if we were doing a leadership talk, talk there are so many leadership qualities that we can learn from Nehemiah. One of the ones I quickly want to highlight is in chapter 5. It says, For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the, the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine, beside 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. You want to see a leader that isn't self-serving with his associates and his levels of leadership that are abusing, getting what they could out of the system. And yet he says, I didn't even ask for land. The next verse, I devoted myself to working on the wall and I refused to acquire land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. This is an example of a leader of integrity that gave his life for something, not in it to see what I can get out of it for the detriment of our nation and our people. God, give us a leader like Nehemiah in this nation and in this continent and in the superpowers of the world. Imagine you could work on the hearts of our leaders, our worldwide leaders, and make them God-fearing men and women that said, I will not act this way even though my former leaders behaved this way. The great news of the story 
you find in Nehemiah 6, verse 5 to 16. So on October the 2nd, the war was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun, this was a masterclass. This was a miracle. 52 days, just under two months to get this right. Something that had taken them over 100 years just to get the temple going. They rallied everyone together and within 52 days were able to rebuild the wall and fix it. And when our enemies and surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. God, won't you help this nation? This work can only be done with the help of our God. This continent, this world that we live in, God can only be done with your help. Because it's going to take a miracle. See, I had a community meeting in Olivedale where I stay, and then we talked about how to increase the community. And, and the whole vibe is this country's unemployment rates are going up. Things are getting desperate. Security, we have to spend more on security. We have to try and deflect the criminals to another suburb that's more vulnerable. How can we protect where we live? And I walked around looking at our neighbors and our community, and I can see the desperation and the hopelessness. God, help us. God, help dark Europe that may have the safety but has a spiritual cloud of darkness over that nation. I've got friends who live in Holland, and she'll, she'll tell you about the darkness that lives over that nation. The rule of there is no God, and you must be crazy to believe in a God. And the state of the schools, the state of this world, God, only you can bring the breakthrough that we're so desperate. So I want to ask you today, what section of the wall will you help rebuild in this nation? Our society is broken. There is brokenness. In our education, in our government, in our communities, what wall is God calling you to take responsibility for and rebuild? God is looking for people who will rebuild a broken society. He's not looking for the qualified. He's not looking for the perfect. He's looking for the available. He's looking for people who will have a burden for this nation and advancing his kingdom. I started off this year, we did a series called For Our City, and I read you this quote by Alan Scott, and I want to end today off with this quote. It says, it's time to ordain the hairdresser and the Uber drivers, engineers and baristas of kingdom carriers. It's time to release filmmakers and poets and lawyers and doctors. It's time to anoint people to teach in church and teach in schools. It's time to recognize apostles and architects. It's time to bless the missionary and bless the mechanic, the person that works with machinery. It's time to pray for the young woman heading to cemetery to study theology and for the young man heading to university to study fashion. It's time to ordain the ordinary. We do so knowing that the next great move of God is not going to be a movement in the church. It is going to be a movement of the church into society. 
rewriting the story of education in our cities, health in our cities, and business in our cities. God is repositioning the church to reach the whole city with believers communicating, demonstrating, and celebrating the supremacy of Christ in every corner of society, of our culture. What role will you play? What role has God called you to play? Next time you face a defining moment where He breaks your heart for something and He gives you an assignment, what will you do to rebuild the broken walls of society? Will you say a prayer in your heart that says, God, here I am. Send me, use me. Get me out of the comfort of my palace as a comfortable place. Open my eyes and my heart to the plight, the difficulty that this world, these people face and send me to be the change. Break my heart for what breaks yours and then give me the assignment. And then once you've given me the assignment, give me the perseverance to push through and the courage to endure. When I face the opposition, when I face the onslaught of the enemy, when I face the attack that my family's got to face, help us to persevere and still stand and still be standing. God, won't you raise up a church in this nation? Won't you raise up kingdom carriers that will walk into their workplace and their varsities and their schools and their businesses and our communities that would be kingdom carriers? God, let us see the miraculous. Let us see a God who is able. Let us hear the stories of the Andrews and the Angies in our personal lives when we pray for people, when we stand with people. Let us be that demonstration of your kingdom advancing. Thank you that as a church, we are not facing the great divorce, but we are getting ready for the great wedding. That there is hope. That when things get darker, we have the opportunity to shine brighter. So let our light shine. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. Why don't you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a couple of songs as we go off. A song we know very well. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I have for your kingdom call. You may be struggling. You may be feeling like it's just too difficult. Some of these songs are going to hopefully speak courage back into your life. hope you enjoyed this recording. For more information about New Creation, please visit our website at www.newcreation.co.za. Stay blessed.